a village in Russia is visited by a stranger. A very tall stranger. And then we take a look at one of the most bizarre true crime stories I've come across in a long time. We're going to meet a man named Jonathan Norman. A man with a plan. A man with a goal. He wants to rape Steven Spielberg. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys had a totally awesome weekend, had lots of fun doing some really cool stuff. So I did get you, I did get your emails and I did get your YouTube comments. Friday's episode was a little depressing, right? The story about my blind friend. <laughs> just don't bring it back up, man. Just don't bring it back up. We, I, we just wouldn't have ignored that episode. I know it's depressing. I was thinking about it afterwards. It was more depressing because it didn't have an ending. It was just like, I don't know if she's still alive. I don't know if she still has a job. See, guys, see, guys, this week, it was super bizarre, it was super bizarre, and I try not doing, I do cover depressing stuff on the show, but I have a rule, I try not to cover it on Fridays, because then it's like, you don't have anything fun, it's not like I'm the only piece of media you absorb, but you know what I mean, like, you listen to the show for, like, fun, spooky stories, and then I tell the story about this poor blind woman, and then I'm just like, see you in a couple days, guys, I want to go play Creeper World 4, you're like, what? So I did get, I did, I did hear loud and clear. I, I broke my rule. I normally don't talk about stuff that depressing on the weekends. And so we're going to try to do some more lighthearted stuff. So n- not out of control, not out of control. I mean, obviously we are going to talk about a man who is trying to rape Steven Spielberg. There's that, 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 That's the most opposite of lighthearted possible. True story too. Absolutely fascinating story. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and introduce our brand new Patreon for this episode. Coming into Dead Rabbit Man right now. He's like, I don't want to be in this episode. I'm a huge Spielberg fan. This sounds like a horror movie. Coming into Dead Rabbit Man right now. Give it up for Steven. Oh no, what if this is actually Steven Spielberg? I didn't even think about that. Because his only name, his first name is the Patreon name. Steven, you're going to be our captain our pilot this episode if you guys can't support the patreon i totally understand just help spread the word about the show really really helps out a lot now steven damn it i, sh- I should have planned this out better i really should have had different people Ugh. um steven let's go ahead i'm not gonna fix it i'm just gonna keep rolling with it steven i'm gonna go ahead and toss you the hair hang glider we're gonna leave behind dead rabbit command we're gliding all the way out to russia <sighs> Specifically, we're headed out to the Volga region. So you see that region down there that I'm pointing at, Stephen? Right there. That's where we're headed. And then hit that time travel button right on the side. We're going back to the year 1650. And now it's just like lush countryside. And it's all like sepia toned and stuff like that. We see like these army men walking around. And they have on big old fuzzy hats. These guys are called Cossacks. And they're walking by the Russian River, and they're cracking walnuts in their mouth. Arr, arr, arr. That's what they're doing when they're not out, like, shooting bad guys or good guys. I don't really know how the Russian regime was in 1650. They could have been super brutal. They could have been quite mild. I don't know. But anyways, the Cossacks are walking around with their little guns. This is a Cossack settlement in the region. And one day, the people are like, dude, hey, look at that. Oh, what's that? Hey, hey, dude, dude, put down your fuzzy hat. I can't see over your hat. What's going on? And everyone's looking out, and they see on the outskirts of the village, they see this giant dude kind of walking towards town. 
And they can immediately tell he's massive. Now, we've covered giants on this show before. We've covered Bigfoot a lot, seven, eight, nine feet tall. We've covered giants on this show, like the giant of Kandahar, I think, was like 12 feet tall. That's pretty standard for giants. This dude was a whopping 19 feet tall. Oh, this giant 19 foot tall dude, that's massive. And here's the thing. You got this 19 foot tall dude walking into your village. That's that's alarming enough. But as they're getting closer, they realize this guy has, has a look of panic on his face. He doesn't look like he's having a good day, which is, makes it 100 times worse. If a gentle giant showed up, if Clifford the Big Red Dog or the BFG, oh, there's a Spielberg reference for you. I'm sure there'll be a ton of them. There'll be a contest if you can count all of them. There's seven. I don't know why I haven't done them yet, but we'll just say there's seven. Uh, giant guy's walking, and he goes, boy, <laughs> boy, I wish I had something to put in my jaws. The giant guy's distressed. The giant guy is not happy. So that is, that's just doubled your problems. You got a giant who's not happy. And apparently, so we don't have a ton of information on this story. I got it from the Alberto Rosales Humanoid Report. So I'll put it in the show notes, and they got it from a report from a group called Volhevi Oranio Moscow in 2005 is when they got this got this report. But we don't have a ton of information about it, but we have a 19-foot-tall man showing up at a village, which if you think, really, logically, that should, be the only, that should be the only thing that village ever recorded. That's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to that village, ever. There should be tons of written documents on this thing. But war and famine maybe during <laughs> during some soviet created famine they ate the pages of all the history books i don't know 19 foot tall man in this village in this cossack village he was there for a while not just passing through not just people papa did you see that look at that look like a tall man nothing like that this guy this guy is camping outside of the city to the point that they're able to start make connections with his activities not a fleeting in the distance, nothing like that. He was walking through town. Now, they don't say, like, was he, like, shopping? Was he, like, trying to eat some delicious walnuts? Was he trying to phone home? We don't know any of these things. We just know that they, we just know that there was this 19, well, we don't know that either. I mean, this is just a story being told, but what the story tells us, there's a 19 foot tall man living in town, and he's there so much that people started to realize that if he cl came close to you, which, again, when you're 19 feet tall in a village, everywhere is close to you. When he comes close to you, you start to feel a wave of melancholy around you. Ooh, this giant guy's walking through town, and you're like, have a really good day. And then you turn the corner, and you're like, oh, why do I start to feel so emotional? It's like almost like there's a war of the worlds inside of me between being happy and being melancholy. And then the guy passes, and you're like, oh, it's just Barry, Barry the melancholy giant. So this guy's walking around doing all this stuff. And that's bad, right? So now you have a 19-foot-tall giant. He's still upset. He's still not the most calm person. If he comes near you, you get upset. <laughs> I don't because I don't want a 19-foot-tall guy walking around my town. I guess I don't have anything with that. If a 19-foot-tall guy came to my town and was, like, cool and stuff like that. But if he visibly upset me, if he made my soul shake. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the fact that he was upset that he made you upset. Women in town started to have miscarriages. So now you're acting you're like, great, Jason, real lighthearted episode there, buddy. The fact of the matter is, is that 
you can tank a giant angry guy in your village as long as he's not doing anything. And you can also kind of tank the fact that when he's around, makes you feel uncomfortable, but whatever. But the fact that it's now diminishing your population in 1650 Russia, where there's not a ton of people to begin with, you need your babies. You need your babies. How else are you going to have future Caustic soldiers? Or just loving children? I guess you're not trying to build this imperialistic army. They decide. They put all this together. This guy's hanging out in town. He's always scowling. He's making us upset. And now women are not being able to have babies. They're having miscarriages. So the locals get pissed off about this. And again, everything I'm telling you is all the information that we have. And so when we get to the conclusion, it's even more bizarre because we're just left with a bunch of questions. The townspeople, they get mad at this giant for causing all these miscarriages and just giving them in general, just generally bummy days since he showed up. They rise up. They rise up against him and the entire town murders this 19 foot tall man. And that's the end of the story. And this is one of those stories that you hear. It's a very, very interesting story. Where did this visitor come from? Was this a demonic human hybrid? Was this like a Nephilim type of thing? Was this alien? Was it interdimensional? Was it just a unusually tall person for the time? And then as the years have gone by, they've been like, ah, oh, that man, he was at least five foot eight. A giant, a giant among men. And then over time, he's gotten bigger. Who knows? Multidimensional creature, we don't know. There's a hundred different scenarios for this. And zero evidence. And it's super... Like, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I wanted a I would have enjoyed a graphic blow by blow battle, but it's just interesting the lack of details. It, it does make the story suspect. They should have giant bones and stuff like that, but that's just the skeptical side coming out. So it could definitely be made up. It is interesting though, as just as a spooky story. Is it spooky? I think it's just interesting as a spooky paranormal story because it shows how, and we've talked about this on the show, and I actually hate bringing this up, and I'm going to bring it up later this week again, or maybe next week as well. How powerless humans are in the midst of these creatures. And you go, well, Jason, yeah, but they killed this guy in the end. They all rose up and killed. Yeah, sure. There was enough of them and it was a outpost. So you had a bunch of soldiers there and you could take on a knight, a knight fighting a 19 foot tall guy with 1650 technology. It seems like it would be bordering on the absurd. So you probably wouldn't need a lot of people to take this thing down. But the fact that this creature, whatever it was, simply by being around humans affected their mood. Like they felt the energy of melancholy it was like a smashing pumpkins album just tumbled into their soul this is what it felt like just by being in its presence they're getting such psyche altering effects that's a very very powerful thing you can't discount that at all and the fact that this creature just by being in town was causing miscarriages was killing humans and so a lot of time, I know we talk a lot about beating up gray aliens on this show, which I still find highly amusing. I'll never get over the idea of just beating the crap out of one of those guys, punching them in the eyeballs. But I mean, that, that, that's all nonsense, right? These aliens, superior technology, they have the ability to freeze you in your tracks. They have telepathy and who knows what else, right? We only hear the stories from the survivors, the people who did something really, really messed up and those gray aliens got mad and like turned them into spaghetti. We don't hear that message. We don't hear that story because spaghetti can't tell that story. 
just with like a blink of an eye, they do something with telekinesis. We don't know. And so when we look at other paranormal phenomenon and how it interacts with humans, this type of stuff is important. And it goes to show how powerless we can be in these situations. I would love more detail. I mean, again, 1650, it's farther back. I would. The, I don't really need to know how they killed the giant. Again, that would be really fascinating. I want to know the time span. I want to know the time span because they make it sound like it was like a, a period of time, a couple weeks, enough for them to notice this stuff going on. I, for all I know, it was a really, really long afternoon. He walks in and he's like, hey guys, what's going on? And everyone gets depressed and they murdered him. And like, so, but I would like to know that time period. But other than that, very, very fascinating uh, story. And again, just how powerless we can be on our own planet. And that's not fun. I thought this was supposed to be an uplifting episode. Steven, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Volga, Russia. We have pockets full of walnuts while you are calling in that Carpenter Copter. We are headed all the way out to Pacific Palisades, California. The year is 1997. And there's a reporter sitting at the Los Angeles Times, and something's not sitting right with him. He's looking around. He's looking for any giants. He's like, that's weird. I feel melancholy. Is there a giant man around? There's a whisper going through the journalism community of L.A. Something really big is happening with the LAPD, the Los Angeles police, and the court system. There's this, like, grand jury being held, but the victim's name is, like, John Doe. I was like, that's where I see the name pop up all the time. Maybe it's a mystery. Who is this John Doe? The journalists, the journalists in the area start to get wind that there's a cover-up. Somebody is covering something up, and they need to get to the bottom of this. So this is what journalists do, right? They investigate stuff. But they're getting stymied. They're getting stymied by the courts. They're getting stymied by the police, and they just cannot figure it out. June 23rd, 1997, we're in Pacific Palisades area, very, very wealthy part of Los Angeles. There's a man named Jonathan Norman. He's a 31-year-old dude, and he's driving a rental car, and he pulls up to the front gate at Steven Spielberg's mansion. I imagine there's, like, peacocks walking around and, like, has ponds and, like, statues, like, shooting water and stuff like that. Very idyllic. Idyllic? It's a very nice scene. And Jonathan is sitting there. He's a buff dude. He's a former bodybuilder. He's a really buff guy. Kind of has that Hollywood good looks. And he's sitting there in his car. And the security guard at the gate is like, Hey, buddy, where are you going? He's like, Oh, hey, my name's Jonathan. I'm a friend with David Geffen, big music producer dude. I'm sure you know of him. Anyways, I'm a friend of David Geffen's. And he sent me here to meet with Steven Spielberg. So why don't you hit that little button and make that gate go, Ooh, and I'll just drive on in. And I'll try not to run over any peacocks. And the guards aren't going to let this guy in, right? They don't know this dude, right? That'd be the easiest thing to say. They're not going to let him in. But when he's like, no, I got to get in there. I got to see Steven Spielberg. One of the guards goes, well, he's not even here. He's in Ireland. So, I mean, even if we did let you in, there's nothing you could do. I mean, you might be able to lay some sort of horrible trap and hide in his house for a couple weeks until he comes back and then spring up and grab him. But, I mean, that's just ridiculous. No one would actually do that. So just leave. And Jonathan, Jonathan's like taking notes as he's talking. He's like, ooh, I didn't think about that. On July 9th, Johnny takes his buddy Charles Markovich driving him around town. He goes, hey, you want to go see something cool? You want to go see the outside? You want to see the outside of Steven Spielberg's house? What? Yeah, it's awesome. Does it have peacocks? It has all the peacocks. So they're driving up through Pacific Palisades. And Charles is sitting there. 
I want you. I, I you really have to put yourself in this situation, right? Because we obviously know a true crime story is about to unfold. But imagine you're sitting in a car with your buddy Jonathan. You're sitting outside Steven Spielberg's house in this car, and you're just sitting in the passenger seat. And Jonathan pulls out a day planner. You're like, that's weird. Those things still exist. They're super popular in 1997. And as he's fiddling with the day planner, you see a photo in there. And you go, hey, what? What was that? And Stephen goes, oh, this? And he opens the day planner fully up. And it's a photo of a naked man with Steven Spielberg's head pasted on the where the dude's head was. It wasn't like he was juggling Steven Spielberg's head. There's a bunch of them flowing around. The head, the face was replaced with Steven Spielberg's face. So first, first off, you have to comprehend the shot of a young naked man with Steven Spielberg's face on it. And you're trapped in a, you're not trapped in the car with this guy. It's not like there's hot lava outside the car, but you're in the car with this guy. And you're looking at this and you see a naked photo of a man with Steven Spielberg's face. So that's odd enough. And then... He turned, you go, you obviously go, what is, what is that? Why do you have that? Why does that exist? There's so many questions. And then Jonathan turns to Charles and says, hey, I'm not going to do this right now, so don't worry. You're not part of this. But one of these days, one of these days, Charles, I am, see that fence right there? <laughs> You're sitting outside Steven Spielberg's house, naked photo, Photoshop photo. Of Steven Spielberg in this dude's possession. He goes, Charles, one of these days, you know, it's a, a man has to have a dream, right? I'm going to climb this fence. I'm going to go into that house. And I am going to rape Steven Spielberg. Now, again, this is one of those stories where I want a little more context. How long did they sit there? Like, at what point did Charles go, you know, I'm going to walk. I know that it's 30 miles away from my destination, but I'm good. I'm not going to be in the car with you anymore. Did he then just drive away after making that statement? Did they sit for there for a while and watch Peacocks? Like, what was going on? How do you respond to that? Now, I know what, how I would respond to that. I'd go, are you serious? And I'd probably chuckle because I wouldn't think he was real. And then I'd go, where'd you get that sexy photo of Steven Spielberg? Oh, I want one of those. Do they have one of George Lucas? But anyways, now it's July 11th. It's 7 in the morning, and at this point, security has seen he's rented a different car now. He's rented a car that looks like Steven Spielberg's wife's car, so it's not so noticeable in the area. But Steven Spielberg's wife, one, is in Ireland with Steven Spielberg and the family. Two, it's not a bodybuilder. <laughs> it's not a giant muscular man, right? The fact that the car looks the same, it kind of works like at first glance, but that's obviously not her behind the wheel. And so security has already like been like, hey, you got to leave. And he's like, what? No, my car just broke down. And they're like, well, your car needs to break down somewhere else. So that had happened before, but now we're on July 11th at 7 in the morning. Now, this entire area is... is patrolled by private security very very wealthy area so homeowners start calling the security company and they have people on site and it's seven in the morning it's seven in the morning and the west tech security officers on the scene start to get reports from neighbors people in the area saying someone's running through my backyard i just saw a guy run through my backyard it looked like he had a big stick and he's just kind of running around and security guards like what like this is a nice area most people don't mess with this but they start looking in the backyards trying to check this out and sure enough they see a muscular man holding a five foot long stick running through the backyard and one of them goes hey look it's steven spielberg's wife 
And they go, no, 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 you buffoon, chase him. So people are start chasing, the security's chasing this guy. And as he's running, he gets into Steven Spielberg's backyard. And then the chase continues, and he ends up under a bush at some point, and they drag, security drags him out. Now, this man has an answer for everything. They, they are not good answers, but he has an answer for every single question. First off, first question you want to know is, who are you? And he says, I, good sir, as he stands and he's dusting himself off, I am David Spielberg. Steven Spielberg's a long-lost son. Long-lost non-Jewish son who's a giant bodybuilder, and you never heard of me, but here I am. And they kind of go, well, okay, <laughs> go check that out. They didn't have the internet back then. They're like, we might have to take his word on that one. Why, are, if, if you are his son, okay, why are you running through people's backyards? And he and David Spielberg kind of scoffs. I mean, this guy's a big shot in town, right? He scoffs and he goes, because of the jackals. The jackals, good sir, were chasing me. If you were being chased by the jackals, what would you do? Would you simply stand there and get jackaled? The security guards are like, what are you talking about? And he goes, the jackals. And he points at Steven Spielberg has a bunch of security dogs, apparently. So he, for whatever reason, he kept calling them jackals. Now, for all, I, for all I know, Steven Spielberg actually has a bunch of jackals in his backyard. But that's that was explaining why he was running. He was running to get away from these attack dogs. And they go, okay, okay, so maybe you are David Spielberg. Because he does have a big family. And maybe the dog scared you. Because those dogs are quite scary. I saw them gnawing on a lion's bones earlier. But how do you explain that? And they point to the ground. And David looks down. And while... <laughs> While they were dragging him out of the bushes, his day planner fell open and a bunch of naked photos of his dad, a bunch of naked photos of Steven Spielberg fell out. And they're like, you're that, that we should have just said that right away, right? You're obviously not David Spielberg. Um, and if you are, you need a lot of help. If you're carrying around, if you're making photos like this of your own father. At that point, so this all went on, they release him. 10.30 in the morning, they go, oh, Jonathan, you're free to go. Give us that big stick. You're free to go. Don't come back. You hear? 5.10 p.m. that same day. He's sitting in that rented car on the street, and security's like, are you kidding me? They see him just sitting there, and so they call the police. They're like, we're done with this, right? We, we don't even want to look at those photos again. They call the police. The police show up, and they begin searching him, searching his vehicle, all that stuff. They have the authority to do this. So and they, he has a litany of, you know, allegations against him. He's in the area. He's not leaving, trespassing, all this stuff. They talk to him, and they find on him handcuffs, box cutter, and duct tape. That stuff was literally what was on him. That's what he had in his pockets. Because then they searched the car. They found more handcuffs. They found more photos of Steven Spielberg. And they're like, oh man, it's this montage. The officer's like, oh, can I get an early retirement? They're like filing for PTSD. And, uh, and more razor blades. This guy, I mean, how many razor blades do you need to assault Steven Spielberg? The police then ask, you know, why do you have all this stuff? And he said... Well, guys, I'm told I've heard of David Spielberg. And they're like, don't give us the David Spielberg thing. He goes, okay. He goes, I have a script. I'm working on a script with Steven Spielberg. 
And these are props. These are props for the script. <laughs> Detectives must be thinking, do you know what a script was? Normally, the script doesn't have props. It's just writing. It's just words on paper. He goes, ah, yeah, this is special. This, this script has props. And they go, okay, well, what's the script about? And he goes, well, it's about a man raping another man. And the officers are looking at each other and they're like, can we just have like one normal day being a police officer? What are you talking about? You wrote a script about a man raping another man. You've been caught trying to break into this dude's house multiple times, driving up to the gate, trying to get in the backyard. You're scoping out the area. You have all this stuff. And then they added this quote into this legal document. Like there is like a summary of like a legal summary of the case. And after that, after he explained that what it was, it was props for a script about a man raping another man. This is written in the legal document, quote, no screenplay was found in the car. Which to me would have been more shocking, the fact that he actually went through the trouble to write 120 pages detailing this, but he didn't. So, but at this point, the police are like, this guy is dangerous, but he hasn't. This is 1997. Stalker law was different. It was very, very hard to get people charged. So they said, listen, we think this guy's dangerous. We're going to put him under a three-day hold. Let's see, get him checked out. At this point, Steven Spielberg is completely unaware of what's going on back at home. He has no idea. that. And at this point, it's just a guy trying to like poke around in the backyard, right? And now he said... I wrote a script about raping a guy and they found razor blades. Like, it's alarming, but again, the police are not really going. He hasn't really broken a serious crime yet. So Steven Spielberg, who is in Ireland with his family, he gets a phone call from his lawyer. And his lawyer goes, hey, Stevie, uh, there's a little bit of issue. I know you're super busy over there, but we've got a little bit of the issue going on here. Local police have contacted me and they've said there's a man who's been trying to get into your house. He was calling your dogs jackals and he had some very flattering photos of you, Mr. Spielberg. I can tell you've been working out. And he's like, what? So, Steve, there is an issue. This guy is stalking you and we don't know what's going to happen. He had these weapons in your car and he's talking about rape and, and blah, 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 blah. Now, Steven Spielberg, he's terrified by this news. And I think anyone rightfully would be. Someone's trying to get in your house and talking about raping dudes and stuff like that. He has a family. Now, they're all over in Ireland. But the problem is, is that one, he does not want to tell his wife about what's going on because she'll panic. Two, he, and this is all according to like court transcripts. He did testify against this guy. He couldn't, like, when he heard the news, it was shocking to him. No one, he said, no one in my life, no one had ever come into my life to do me or my family harm, is what he said. This was a brand new experience for him, and it shocked him. He couldn't really talk about it. He was super paranoid. He didn't know where this guy was. He knows that they held him for three days, and then they let him go. Some stupid security guard told Jonathan that he was in Ireland, and, and... He gets off the phone with his lawyer. Click. Mr. Spielberg, we're ready to start shooting again, an assistant says. And Steven Spielberg walks out of his little office. And he's on the set of Saving Private Ryan. He's filming a movie that has hundreds of extras. Armed with very, very realistic looking guns and, and realistic knives. The knives weren't fake. And he has to day in and day out look at this sea of young men. It would be so easy for this Jonathan guy to get 
right next to Spielberg. Steven Spielberg was absolutely in fear for his life. He has said, I honestly believe that had this man had the opportunity, he would have raped, maimed, or killed me. He makes no bones about this at all. Very, very terrified of him. And he's on the set of a movie. I mean, like, he knows seven people by name. He knows those seven main actors, but everyone else walking around, looking underneath every helmet. But he doesn't really even know who, what the guy looks like either. He's never seen him. July 18th, Jonathan is picked up for an unrelated parole violation, which I think, if anything, this is where the cover-up, the conspiracy started happening, and Spielberg's lawyer says, wrap them up and wrap them up for anything you can find. And Spielberg's lawyer is calling the mayor of L.A. that your guys need, your cops need to get this guy in jail, get him out of here, and we need to keep this covered up because we do not need this type of publicity. So there was a lockdown. The police were investigating this behind the scenes. But they picked him up for an unrelated parole violation, something super minor. And then on July 21st, three days later, he issues a full confession. Jonathan tells the police, listen, one day I was sitting at home, everything was totally normal. And then for whatever reason, I became, like we all do, I became sexually obsessed with Steven Spielberg. It was a very recent obsession. And I came up with a goal. My goal was to break into his house and rape him. But I know that sounds bad, officers, but here's the thing. Steven Spielberg wants me to rape him. And we're going to become gay lovers. And the cops go, well, he has a wife and a family. And, and Jonathan says, well, I'll tell you this. I'm not a monster. If I broke into the house and the wife was there, I'd let her watch. I'd tie her up, handcuff her, and let her watch me and her husband have butt sex. And the cops are just writing down this information, and they're like, you know, this is pretty disturbing, but I, at least I don't have to be the guy who's handling the evidence. Because what happens is, when they do go and start going through all of his stuff, his cars and his personal possessions, they find his day planner, and it gave them a list on what he actually wanted to do. Like, And it goes more into detail like what he was planning, and it had a shopping list. That included items. He didn't own these yet, but he needed to pick up some uh, eye masks. Blindfolds, right? Those are pretty cheap. I don't think he was worried about money. I don't think he was like, oh, I need to go to the dollar store for this stuff. Dog collars. So maybe like leading Steven Spielberg. Or, I don't know. And then um, nipple clamps. Ugh, I, I hate those. I hate those. I don't even like knowing. I don't even like knowing that those exist. And then in his possession, they found more addresses of other people in Steven Spielberg's family. They found maps of homes. They found even more razor blades. And they found an article about, according to the legal document, it says in his possession was, quote, an article chronicling the stalking conduct of John Lennon's killer, unquote. It was very, very interesting. They didn't name John Lennon's killer. They just said it was about John Lennon's killer. So, And we all know that Stephen King killed John Lennon. So I thought that was an interesting thing of why they just wanted to admit that in the court document. But he gets arrested for stalking. He's getting charged for this, and all of this is being kept under wraps. Jonathan Norman has been stalking John Doe for a couple weeks and this story finally gets out. The LA Times and other newspapers are finally able to break this story. But at this time, it's 
from what I could tell, I, all the research I did on this, at this time it seems like they broke the story either at the end of the trial or after the trial. So there was no I, there was no media allowed in the courtroom to begin with. But it, there was no... That's why it wasn't a big news story. I, I don't even remember it back then. It might have been a blip in the news. If, if the trial was going on and there was news footage of Spielberg in the room being like, no, no, no more nipple clamps. And they're like, exhibit B. And it's like, this photo of hunky Fabio guy with Steven Spielberg's head on the screen, it probably would have been a bigger spectacle. But they were able to keep it covered up. He was found guilty for this. Stalking was the charge. And he got 25 years to life. Now, here's the thing. Currently, he's at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton, and that's where you go for long-term or acute medical needs. So he could be currently going through something like cancer or something like that, or that could be for medical, like mental medical reasons, because this guy's obviously nuts. But this story took place back in 1997. It's 25 years next year. He's been up for parole since 2019, and he hasn't gotten it yet. I checked the inmate locator. He's still there, but... 25 years is next year. And the way that we've seen this, these judges come down really hard when the crime's committed. And then like Saran Saran, isn't he walking around now? The dude who shot Reagan, I think he's out. Like people, people who presidential assassins, people who are taking out political figures, murderers have been paroled. So who knows if some judge is going to look at this and go, ah, he's a good boy. He's been really good in prison. Let him out. Steven Spielberg said about this man, quote, I think he is on a mission, and I don't think he will be satisfied until he accomplishes his mission. And I think I am the subject of that mission. A creepy, forgotten true crime story that may become relevant soon. If he does get paroled, will he be a good boy and just go back into society? He'd be in his 50s by now. Get a job at Kroger Supermarket bagging oranges. Get a job job at a magazine doing Photoshop? We don't know. Will he go back into society? Or will it just be one more lunatic on the street who's had 25 years to perfect his techniques? No more running through backyards. No more just sitting in driveways. He's had 25 years talking to other professional convicts. And he could be walking free any day. If someone's after you for revenge or they're after you because they're mad at you or something like that, a lot of times you can wear out that anger, right? You can just kind of avoid the situation. Maybe you talk it out with them. Maybe you can both be adults. You can talk it out with them. Hatred, anger, pain, these things fade with time. But love is eternal. Love never dies. And if those prison gates ever open and Jonathan Norman walks out a free man, is he going to integrate into society? Or will he start walking down the street whistling a jaunty tune headed towards the Pacific Palisades? A song in his heart, a skip in his step, and a razor blade in his pocket. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. 
Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.